To whom shall we go? What Peter said, said it to our Lord Jesus on this very critical, decisive moment, as we have it recorded for us in John chapter 6. And he didn't say that knowing all the answers. To whom shall we go? Not that he imagined that everything would be just made clear to him, that everything that he'd been listening to, and we just read, didn't we, a portion there of what our Lord's discourse in the synagogue in Capernaum had consisted of, and which had generated the reaction that it did. And I'm sure if we'd asked Peter, well, tell us then what all these things mean, he wouldn't have been able to answer it. I suspect most of us wouldn't be able to answer it now. And here we are with familiarity with the New Testament. There wasn't even a New Testament for Peter to refer to. Yet, he knew that nowhere else, nobody else could offer the things that the Lord Jesus was offering. Nobody else had the authority who was able to say most assuredly, I say to you, Nobody else could bring truth from heaven, relate it and apply it to the minds and the consciences of people like this. And he'd seen him, who he was, how he lived, the kind of person that he was. Watched him, observed him at close quarters, watched his reactions to every event, events that we have here in scripture, events we don't have here in scripture. Peter was privy to it all. Well, a Christian isn't someone who knows everything. Peter didn't know everything when he showed that he was going to cleave to the Lord Jesus, that he was going to be glued and fixed to him. But he knew enough, and he knew someone above all, the Lord Jesus. Maybe that's what we would say today. Maybe we've had a week that's left us with more questions and answers. Maybe we've had a Christian pilgrimage that's left us with more questions and answers. But still, when it comes down to it, when we're really up against it, we would stand with Peter and we'd say, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else can we go? There's nothing out there. There's nobody with anything that they can say that's remotely useful. Only you. Only you, and we've discovered by experience, only you have that truth. And we've learned of you, as we've walked with you, that you're just beyond anybody else. And that's where we perhaps find ourselves here. And this was a critical time, wasn't it? This was a time when people were turning away, when the crowd was voting with its feet. And the people, well, we see them there in verse 60, when they heard this, What, you've got to eat his flesh, drink his blood? What is this? This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And where he has said, he who eats this bread, and he's talking about himself, will live forever. What kind of things is he taking to himself here? What kind of power is he asserting that he has here? Who can give life? Only God. What's he saying? And they declare it to be a hard saying who can understand it, rather than asking for clarification, rather than looking for understanding, they walk. 
the people of Belper do, don't they? They walk. <laughs> We're offering them understanding. Oh, these are hard sayings. They have their own set of reasons. Might come to some of them in, in a moment for, for walking, walking away. And that's what they were doing here. And Peter was watching this. <laughs> he was seeing this. Support was draining away. Verse 66, John 6 tells us from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They went. Doesn't look as if they came back, does it? And you can imagine perhaps there were people there that Peter knew, respected people, people from, well, he's from Bethsaida, wasn't he? Was nearby Capernaum, he'd, he'd have known the synagogue ruler in Capernaum, he'd have known the important teachers who were there. Maybe some of them were those who began to walk with him, who began to listen, but who said, no, this is a hard saying. Who can, who can understand this? And who, Walk away, sort of dismissively there. People might well walk away from Derby County football match, tearing up their season tickets. Said, I'm done with that. I can't, can't take any more of this. And there they are, in a more significant sense, walking away from him. And maybe looking at Peter, as if to say, why are you staying? <laughs> why are you staying here? Do you understand all of this? And Peter would have had to say, well, yeah, these are hard sayings, and I don't think I fully understand it either when he talks about uh, drawing people that uh, we can't come unless it's granted by the Father. I, I don't fully understand this. But he finds himself still saying, even with noted authorities, family members maybe, leaving and looking reproachfully at Peter as they go, why are you staying? Why are you staying listening to this? Do you get it? Eating, eating his flesh, drinking his blood. Do you understand that? And Peter probably had to say, well, I don't fully understand it. But he understands this, though, because it is as though the Lord piles on the pressure, doesn't he? It isn't though he's going to make it easy now for Peter and the disciples. You've got this critical moment. You've got these people going away. They're muttering. They're complaining. They're moaning. Important people, learned people doing it. And as we say, maybe looking at Peter and Andrew and other men from around there, Philip, Nathaniel, are you going to stay as well? And the Lord Jesus, instead of offering a word of comfort and a, a little bit of encouragement to Peter, he looks at them and says, do you also want to go away? Knowing full well that there was a tug on their heartstrings there to go, that they would have been looking at that, thinking, well, is it time for me to give up here? It's time for me to go. What have I been listening to? Is this person here just a little bit too much? Taking on a little bit too much, saying a little bit too much about themselves, too full of themselves. Should I be going? My Lord actually opens the door for them. Do you want to go? And Peter instead, well, shall we almost say, finds himself saying against, against maybe some of the turmoil of his own heart, against some of the Failure to understand, failure to believe. Lord, to whom shall we go? Well, what can I say? What other people, authorities are there on the market? What competitors are there? There are none. For whatever I don't understand at the moment, I have to say this, he says, and we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a confession. What, what words. 
brought out from him when everybody else is walking, when the stakes are that high, when the pressure on him is that great. And this is what he says. Can't go anywhere else. I'm, I'm tied to you. You've, you've, you've got me. He's as if confessing that you, you've drawn me. I can't get out of this. I don't want to get out of this. I'm being drawn away by them, but still I'm compelled to stay even in my ignorance, even with what I don't understand. Can you side with Peter in that? Can I? Would you feel the same at that moment? Would you have been able to say this? Do you know enough about him, enough about the Lord Jesus to say nowhere else, no other place, no, no, no one else I can think of remotely who comes near to who you are and the things that you say you have something beyond, something of heaven about you, something of the other world, something of another kingdom. I'm captivated, I'm held, and I'm bound. First heading, we're always out of our depth. Right. Christians, we're always out of our depth. Why are you say we've got a Bible here, haven't we? We certainly have. That tells us so, so many things. And it tells us other things that are not ours to know. And it tells us beyond us, there are secret councils that belong to God. That there are kind of no trespassing signs up. That you're allowed this near, but God still holds, as it were, a prerogative. And asserts that prerogative. That's what he's doing here. That's what the people didn't like. He asserts the prerogative. And we are always invited near, but then also kept at arm's length. Not for you to know. When the disciples want to know, you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time, they're told it's not for you to know. Times that God sets by his own authority. Not for you to know that. And we are often having to say, we're not to know that. Don't understand it. That providence, that happening, that event. Why, that seems so, so wrong in some ways. That doesn't got closure. And we have to admit, we don't know. As a pastor, don't ask me how many years I've been a pastor now, I'm ashamed to say. But more often than not, I find saying to myself, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what God is doing there. I don't know what God is saying. Not yet. Maybe it'll become clearer. Maybe it won't. Or maybe that's just something that belongs to him. One day in glory, eternity, he may confide in us a little more there and tell you and me just what was going on then. But I don't know now. But I still know to whom else shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. What I've discovered, what you've discovered, even though we're out of our depth and helplessly so, eternity and all the counsels of God in time past and how he would draw you and me and work in us sovereignly. Who can understand this? And yet we confess, but Lord, to whom shall we go? You may not tell us everything. You may keep some things shrouded in secrecy. You may tell us some things which still our own minds we can't get round. And yet we know nowhere else, to nobody else will we go. And indeed, we find ourselves here with, with Peter having to hear, not that it gets easier, that uh, here are these people in verse 60 saying, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? And our Lord, knowing this, that his disciples complained about this, so he said to them, does this offend you? And the answer probably is, yes, it does, actually. And he actually puts the pressure up a bit further. Well, what then 
if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? What if you should see me in, in my glory? What if you should behold me at the right hand of God the Father and with angels worshipping me? That might offend you. You look on me as a mere man. You consider me just to be, well, flesh and blood. Well, with family. We know Joseph and Mary and his brothers and sisters. They're with us. What's this man saying? Well, if you should see what actually is my home, my environment, behold that. That would be something to have to countenance. Does that offend you? And so they, like we, like in Peter's confession, I don't know it all, but I know enough. And I know I've got to stay with you. Perhaps you at times feel like quitting, walking away. Well, this is a hard saying. That was a difficult providence. That was something that should have turned out better, should have turned out differently. And you're wrestling with that. But then to whom else will you go? Whose counsel will you look for? What advisor will you look out? Which book will you seek out? Which savior will you put your trust in? If not this one, then who? Second heading, God is bigger than us. Really follows from that, doesn't it? There, it's God, God is, is bigger than us. Does this offend us? Well, that's the question the Lord would, would ask there. Well, what then? If our finite mind should just be shown something of the glory, the wonder of God, I think we'd be joining Job, wouldn't we? Feeling it, Job 42, here we are, we abhor ourselves, we repent in dust and ashes. Whoever were we to wonder, to question, to demand answers of, of him. He is bigger than us. He will always be doing things that are unusual, things that are odd, things that are surprising. Well, it was John Robinson who was there at the sailing away of the Pilgrim Fathers on the Mayflower. Though they ended up touching into Plymouth there and weren't meant to, they meant to carry on sailing. And John Robinson was waving them farewell in, in the Netherlands when he gave an address to them and, and spoke some very wise words, actually. And one of the things he said was this, and this has sort of traveled down through the ages. And he said, I'm verily persuaded the Lord hath more truth yet to break forth out of his holy word. He's that big. There are always going to be fresh applications, more light to come from his word, where we see what he has written and see how that applies in our present situation. We read Psalm 37 verses 1 to 20 earlier, and all of the instruction there when you see the wicked prospering. Well, what do you do? Well, we live in a day, perhaps where we see the wicked prospering differently, some novelties to it that maybe a bygone age never saw. Well, we learn how to apply that here and now. Light breaks forth, as John Robinson anticipated, as it would. God is, is bigger than us, and he's able to accommodate himself to whatever day his word is given to us once for all, but it it's able to accommodate itself to whatever generation and whatever time that we are in. And so the people of that day, they had to learn this. They had to learn that this person speaking to them, though for all that they could see, he was flesh and blood, for all that they could observe, he was a man like them. Yet they had to learn, didn't they, that he was also God, and supernatural therefore. 
So it is that he says to Nicodemus in those well-known words in John chapter 3, verse 3, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, those are words of eternal life, aren't they there? Maybe you've heard them. <laughs> that you need a new birth to, to come into the understanding of these things. And Nicodemus now is perhaps a little offended at that. He, the teacher of Israel, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, we note he doesn't walk away. So that's a hard saying. Who can understand this? But he listens to more. The Lord has more to say. Most assuredly, verse 5, John 3, I say to you, it is that I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And uh, we see similar words, don't we, in John 6, where we were a moment ago. It is the spirit, verse 63, who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit. Their life, that is to say, they are deeply, deeply supernatural. They don't arise from some human authority and authorship. They are not words that uh, I've, I've come up with just to, to give to you here, that this I'm speaking to you of is of another dimension. It has the power to bring you into another dimension, bring you out of your sin, out of your trespasses, out of deadness, bring you into life make you alive, to make you see and enter the kingdom of heaven. You didn't see it before, and you won't see it without the help that he gives. Deeply, deeply supernatural. He draws us. Well, Doddridge's hymn, Oh Happy Day, has that line, doesn't it? He drew me, and I followed on, charmed to confess the voice divine. I had to confess, it's divine. This is truth. These are the words of eternal life. I'm drawn I'm held, I'm, I'm compelled. And so he has it in his hymn, what a happy day it was that fixed my choice, that, that set me on this path, that led me to see great, great things that I never would have seen before. And so God is always, always supernatural and nothing's changed. This day where science claims, some scientists claim to have now explained away God, we don't need him. We've got laws, we understand, we know how the universe holds together, apparently. We know about ourselves, who we are, and we can explain it all without reference to God. Well, that's a bold statement that they make, and a truly, truly false one. No, they don't, because God is working supernaturally today. If you're a believer today, then let me reliably inform you. He's worked supernaturally to that end. Whatever other words you heard from anybody else, that's the flesh, profited you nothing. His word, his call to you, his announcement that you need to repent from your sin and believe in him, that came only because it came with power. It came by the Holy Spirit, Spirit who blows where he wishes. And mystery again, how can we understand these things? But if you look, for instance, at aged Simeon, when he was there, when the Lord baby was presented in the temple, his dedication to the Lord, and he knew the Spirit had already told him that he would not die until he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And then Luke 2, verse 27, so he came by the Spirit into the temple. 
And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said. That meeting was the work of the Spirit. The Spirit of God then moved him, came by the Spirit, met with the infant Lord Jesus and where he took him up in his arms there, didn't he? Well, we are drawn by the same Holy Spirit. We we were moved, I don't know, to go to church perhaps, to open the Bible maybe, to talk to that person at work, to ask that friend, wherever it is, university. And you got talking, and they got talking to you. And you learnt there that you, in one way, had to take the Lord Jesus into your arms, but actually he was taking you into his arms. You felt his embrace, the embrace of a penitent sinner, prodigal coming home. And that indeed left you, left me completely revolutionized. We were won over because God is bigger than us. And that's good news. He's supernatural. Otherwise, no hope. Otherwise, no life. Otherwise, we have no place here. So we're always out of our depth. Just as you'd find in Job chapter 42, verses 1 to 6, Job is out of his depth. Now, the revelation, the disclosure, the God who has been doing things behind the scenes Job knew nothing of, and still, even in Job 42, didn't know the full story. That's that's for us who read the book from beginning to end to know. We've read chapters 1, 2, and 3. We see what's going on. We can still find it difficult to account precisely why it's going on. But there's Job. Confessing the Lord greater than himself. And this is good news, friends. It means that this supernatural God is overruling, overpowering your sin, mine. He is beating back all of the wrong choices we make to conform us, to make something more and better than this. Upending us in our expectations and all of our neatly parceled up kind of things that we might have and showing I'm bigger than you. I'm bigger than you. And my word actually prepares you for that. It doesn't answer all your questions. It tells you no. All your questions aren't going to be answered, but you'll know enough about me. You'll know enough about my reality, my goodness, and my truth. You'll know enough to be able to be with Peter and realize there's nothing anywhere else. Only you, only the Lord Jesus Christ has the words of eternal life. My third heading We have to be used to people walking away. We have to be used to people walking away. Got to get get used to the idea. I'm sure we already are. That a Christian, any time we will have seen any number of people, friends, acquaintances, family members, perhaps, walk away from us. Leave us. Leave us with this. Declare that's a hard saying. I can't go with that. I can't. I can't countenance that. That's just beyond too much. Can't go with you there, mum. Can't go with you there, dad. Walked away. And we have to be used to that. Yeah, people we know, people we care for who walk away. And sometimes it is their response to hard knocks in life. Difficulties, challenges, ill health, bereavement, all manner of griefs and troubles. Providences that were we call frowning providences didn't work out. Just didn't work out. Don't know why. It just did not work out. And that's the moment where people then walk away. That's enough. I can't stay any longer. I don't trust him enough to stay with him. He's he's not done what I thought he'd do. He's not 
been the God I thought he would be. And we have to be used to people walking away and perhaps feeling the tug on our own hearts there to walk away too. To see you stand with Peter and watch me. He's not walking anymore. Or, or, or she's walked away. And asking ourselves, do I know better than them? They seem very intelligent. And they seem to be pretty smart people. And they're walking away, Should, shouldn't I? And the questions come thick and fast to us. Not helped by the fact, particularly in America, that there are some very celebrated examples of people that had some degree of Christian teaching and and profession, maybe wrote books, I could name names that did, no longer walk with him. Indeed, professed atheism. And are now said that's where they are. And they're now arm in arm with people on gay pride marches, wanting to be filmed with selfies, doing all that stuff. What a change that they've gone. And I won't name the names, but one fellow there has even set up a, a ministry for those who are kind of in the church, kind of wanting to get out. Exit strategies and you know, come on. Your, your unbelief and all your doubts are okay and valid. Why? Don't worry. It's fine. I've left it behind. I'm doing fine. Well, we'll watch those people with interest. I don't think it'll turn out so fine at all. Any more than it did with any of those who walked away. They didn't ever hear it again, perhaps. They never turned. And we have to be used to people walking away. And some will walk away and actually say they're more Christian than we are. Some will walk away and say, we're more compassionate, we're more loving, that you are hard people there, that you're cheered by the ruling in the United States from the Supreme Court striking down uh, federal mandated abortion. Well, well, the people are really angry about that in the United States. I guess we're not angry at all. And uh, we might say we're greatly encouraged by that. And the people say, well, that's unloving. That, that's horrible. And you'll hear people, uh, politicians in America at the moment saying, oh, this is religious extremism here. This is, this is bad. This has left women. And somebody smilingly says, it's amazing. We've just suddenly rediscover what a woman is now, whether it's talking about abortion and stuff. We will suddenly we have all clarity on what women are. And, uh, they're, they're holding forth like this. And there'll be many churches will say, well, we stand with you in that. We're outraged too. And we have to be used to that. We have to be used to people kind of pointing fingers at us and full of recrimination against us, what they support to be. Or they'll say, we're on the moral high ground here. We're on the side of love, not fear. We're on the side of human rights, not human wrongs. And we'll level that. As friends, we have to be used to people walking away. Final heading. We have seen and heard too much, though. We have seen and heard too much. People walking away, sure. But we'll stay here, thank you. People trying to trash the Christian faith, trying to trash the person of Christ. Well, say what they will. Flesh profits nothing. We're going where there are words of life spoken by the author of life, the prince of life, the one who came back from the grave, our Lord Jesus Christ. Like Peter, we may not be eyewitnesses. We have the benefit of his testimony. We may not be eyewitnesses, but actually we too have observed, seen, heard, experienced too much walking with him to then walk away. He's been too much to us. He's been too, too strong, too good, too loving toward us for us to dismiss that and say well, it was nothing. 
Christ is so personal, isn't he? He is so personal. We're out of our depth with him. He's bigger than we are, sure. There'll be people that walk away. And he just then says, well, do you want to go as well? Well, that's a question to ask us just. Yes, he's that, he's that, and he's that. But he's so, so personal. He's so, so personal. That he knows your questions and mine, just as he he knew in himself that his disciples complained about this. He knows in himself what you and I are wrestling with today. What is trying to unstick us from being with him? What is trying to make us say it's a hard saying and I'm walking away? And he is so, so personal, so there, so with us. God with us, Emmanuel, in our battles, in our strife. This is perhaps where Peter had uh, had already discovered so, so much. Well, in John chapter 1, when he himself is brought by Andrew and he meets with the Lord Jesus for himself. So John 1 verse 42, and he, Andrew, brought him, Peter, to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas which is translated as stone, rock. Give me a man I'm going to do something with. Now, that wasn't just a factual statement that the Lord made, that he just shrugged his shoulders, yep, that's who I am. Uh, any more than he'd be amazed, hospital appointments coming up there, they read out my name, they read out my full name. I haven't been called by my full name since I left school. Anyway, they, they try that one on me. And it's not as if I think, right, you know my name, you know everything about me. All they know is you, you've got to come and have a look at your skin today or doing poking around there with this celiac that you've got. That's that's all it'll be. There's something here, though. When the Lord Jesus looked at him, looked at him, that look said a thousand, thousand words to Peter. And when the words came that accompanied that look, that you are Simon, the son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas. I think Peter felt as though the Lord just looked into the depths of his soul, saw him for who he was, who he knew he was, and he didn't think he was much of a rock. Imagine his behavior that we learn about further in Scripture is what this family all said about him. Why, you're always flip-flopping around. You blow hot, you blow cold. To be told you're going to be a stone, solid and stable, that must have just been like a message from another world. Oh, that was compelling. Jesus knew this man. And later on in John chapter 1, Nathaniel's turn. Yes, this man, this true Israelite, in whom was no guile, and whom Philip finds sitting under the fig tree. And we imagine wrestling with the wait, waiting for the Messiah. He, he, he's taken up in that. He, he, he's absorbed in that. And that's why then, when the Lord sees him and speaks to him, that's there in verse 47 of John 1. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Notice what Nathanael says. What's the big deal about those words there? Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Statement of fact, is it? But what Nathanael says, How do you know me? How do you know me? That you know my name? And you know something about who I am. He's not saying that he's perfect. He's not saying that he's sinless. But there is something about Nathaniel. There's something real about him. His search for reality, 
for God, for God's Messiah to come. He's a bit like Simeon. He, he's waiting. He's wrestling with it. Hasn't had the spirit tell him directly that he's going to see him like today. In fact, he rather doubts he is going to see him today when he is told Jesus from Nazareth by Philip that that's the one. And Nathaniel said to him in verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I don't think he was going exactly full of expectation. Yet in this, the Lord again sees him and says of him this, that goes to the depth, the core of his being. That is immensely personal. And then the Lord just makes that even clearer. As uh, further, he says, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Knew what you were thinking. Not just any fig tree, that fig tree. The one you always sat under when you prayed. Where your difficulties and your longings and unmet needs and that desire for God to do something. I knew all about it. Before Philip called you, and I saw that. Why, who is this? And there's Nathaniel, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You know me. You are personal. You have insight. You go beyond anything there. My my rabbi, why John the Baptist, whoever else didn't have this. But you have this. And if so for a Peter and for Nathaniel, same for you, same for me. He knows all about us. He knows all about uh, questions. The woman at the well, well, you know about her, I'm sure. Chapter 4. Verse 27, having been told, of course, five husbands, the man you're now with is not your husband. And this you have spoken truly. Well, then she says this, doesn't she? And uh, she is just uh, able there to unburden herself. And verse 28, 29 actually is what I'm looking for, John 4. The woman then left her water pot, went away into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. This be the Christ. And she knew this was personal. She'd had that long conversation, beautifully recorded in John chapter 4. There may not be something in scripture about your conversation and mine when we came to the Lord. But it was as real as that. And he knew you and he knew me. He called us and he dealt with us where we were. And he's been dealing with us ever since. Personally. Genuinely personally. Well, just a few other thoughts to go with that, that our Lord there calls us by name, where you can read that in Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 5. And he meets our deepest need, doesn't he? If you can meet my deepest need, then I'm listening. Deepest need of man is to know forgiveness of God. It's what you and I need to know, that we live in our world in moral confusion, spiritual confusion. We, we are lost. You want to see lost people? Well, have a look at all the people protesting the striking down of Roe v. Wade in America at the moment. Look at them. Their anger, frustrations, irrationality, what they're saying. Ponder it. Because that's what it looks like, actually. Not to have your deepest need met. Not be forgiven. So all those who have amongst them, I'm sure there are quite a few, have had abortions and the rest of it, and carrying the guilt of it. Needing absolution for it. Well, no human work can do it. The flesh will profit nothing for them. And it would seem at the moment, having to tell churches there, watch out. Watch out. They may be coming to firebomb you. That if you are supporting life, you, you may find they're at your doorstep there and wanting to 
wanting to be violent, so they're, they're perhaps not listening at the moment to what would meet their deepest need and would send them instead happily home, forgiven. The woman at the well with all her husbands, and what a story there. But she knew something now. Forgiveness, peace with God, a troubled conscience, a chaotic life now integrated and brought together and under the overarching love and mercy of a kind and compassionate God. Well, there's nothing like it. Peter knows something of it. He can't go anywhere else. I can't part from this. I can't walk away from this forgiveness. I can't walk away from that cross because that's where it shouts at me. That's where I see it all coming to meet with me. And there's no other place to go. That Christ, the one who says it's finished, no more do I have to worry about. Am I right with God? What about my sin? Well, no, he's died for my sin once for all. I worry no longer. And it continues in that way. He is so approachable. He is so approachable. There are people walking away from him. And yet Peter, even though the Lord's invited him to walk away too, won't. He draws ever nearer. And his confession of who the Lord is that is so echoing through the years that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Yet you're so, so approachable. Why, when the miraculous catch of fish and Peter saw that, and apart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, that you can't be with me. We can't have conversation here. You're, you're beyond me, above me. The Lord said, no. Now on, you're going to be a fisher of men. You're going to be that stone, that rock you've already heard about. You walked away from once, but you won't now. And that's Peter for us, isn't it? And that's where we are too. We found him so, so approachable. Those words of eternal life, we don't understand them all. All this mystery of his sovereignty, we don't understand this at all. And yet we are held by him. And yet we know whatever mysteries he holds in his hand, you and I can pray to him. And bring all that's there, churning up our hearts, the turmoil within, watching others walking away, hard providences coming in upon us. He's so, so approachable. To whom else do we go? Friends, are you going to walk or are you going to stay? Are you with him or are you going to say, it's a hard saying, who can understand it? Look, look at him. Look at him. We'll be looking again, won't we, at the communion table in just a moment. Believe in him. Trust in him. And whatever your life at the moment is about, and it's turmoils and it's upheavals, and there are plenty of them, aren't there? You stay with him. He'll see you through. He'll see you through to the end. Because Peter's discovered there isn't anybody else out there. No other book but the Bible. No other authority on these things but this person. And we know a bit more than Peter now, don't we? We know about the cross. We know about the resurrection. And that's, and more than that, the Bible teaches us. And that surely should be our food and our drink to bring us all the comfort that we need. May God bless each of us. May hold us to him like that.